Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Naked Genetics Podcast, taking a look inside your genes. Our world and our bodies are teeming with bacteria, and although some of them are friendly, many of them are not. So they start dividing, they start dividing and dividing and dividing, like a big mass of bacteria inside the cell, and they get bigger and bigger and bigger. Meanwhile, you don't know you're sick. Plus, electrifying news about bacterial nanowires, cuddly koalas, and counting chromosomes, and our gene of the month is the mind-blowing mind bomb. This is the Naked Genetics podcast for November 2012 with me, Dr. Kat Arney, brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. Bacterial infections cause millions of deaths around the world every year, but countless more aren't fatal yet cause untold misery and pain. Urinary tract infections, like cystitis, are caused by bacteria getting into the bladder. They're very common, around half of all women are likely to have one at some point in their life, and as well as causing pain and discomfort, recurring or chronic infections can also lead to incontinence, especially in the elderly. But the reason for these recurring infections sounds more like a horror story than a scientific research paper. To find out more, I spoke to Dr Jenny Roan at University College London and the first thing I wanted to know was, what happens when bacteria get into the bladder? Well, typically they get up there and, you know, it's a nice warm, wet environment and they're quite happy, but it's a rather hostile place because, of course, you're voiding your bladder quite regularly. So if you're a tiny, tiny bacteria, say you're two or three microns wide, and you're being faced by somebody peeing, it's like the force of a fire hose. Normally, this is what happens. The bacteria get up there, and then you have a pee, and they're just whoosh, they're whizzed out, um, and it's not a problem. But bacteria are very, very, very sticky. They've got special proteins on them that like to stick to cells, and E. coli in particular, which is one of the major causes of UTI, is really, really good at sticking to cells. Okay, so normally this is what happens. The cells of the bladder, they're sort of there, and the bacteria get up there, and they manage to evade the peeing process. And they're clinging on there, you know, they're sticking on, and they're causing a little bit of havoc and mayhem. And this is when you might actually start feeling some symptoms. You might feel some burning when you pee. You might start peeing very, very frequently, and then you might have a look at your pee, and you might notice that it's really cloudy, and maybe there's some blood in there, and you know you've got a bad infection. And then you go to your GP, and your GP gives you antibiotics, and you take them for a week. And you feel better, usually. End of story, right? But actually, it's not the end of the story. You might get it again in a few months. And many women suffer with these recurring UTIs. And it doesn't make any sense because these women are usually not, you know, having bad hygiene. They're just, they can't shake this bug. So what's going on there? What's making these certain bacteria just just hang around? The key to the mystery was solved um, about 10 years ago. 
And it was this observation that the bacteria are not always just sticking to the outside. So a bunch of scientists worked out the bacteria are burrowing inside the bladder. So this is very, very strange. E. coli is a free-living organism. It's not a parasite. It's never, never supposed to go inside cells. And in fact, the cell really, it's not on, right? The cell never lets stuff go in there that's not supposed to go in. So if you were a cell and you got invaded by a cheeky bacteria, <laughs> you'd throw up a big cage around it and you'd, you'd degrade it and get rid of it. This is what happens all the time when cells are sort of molested by various things. They just shut them down. Also, the immune system should be doing its job in getting rid of these things. But what happens is when the bacteria get inside the cell, for some reason that we still do not understand, they just escape. They escape all of these controls. They're, they're probably in some sort of bubble, so they've been internalized by the cell, and they're in some sort of bubble. And this bubble's supposed to be heading toward the degradation machinery, the stuff that's supposed to break them into little pieces and kill them. But for some reason, they escape from these bubbles. They get out. They have some sort of communication with the molecules around, and they manage to slip the net. They sort of break out of these little prisons, and it must be they must be tricking the cell somehow because the cell shouldn't let them do that. So we think there's some sort of weird molecular communication going around that's fooling the cell into thinking that these bacteria are supposed to be there, and they're supposed to be released. Okay, so once they're released, it all goes really, really strange. So they start dividing, and they start dividing and dividing and dividing. It's like a big mass of bacteria inside the cell. And they get bigger and bigger and bigger. Meanwhile, you don't know you're sick. You feel fine. <laughs> you know, you've got no sign of any no of this. No sign of anything, but deep inside your bladder, there is these hidden colonies of bacteria that are growing and growing. And they actually, if you look at them down in an electron microscope, you can see they're actually pushing at the pushing at the cells. Like if the cell is a balloon, it's this huge mass inside that's pushing the cells out, distending it. You can see these big bubbles, which are known as pods, which I think is great. This sounds like some kind of horror film <laughs> thing. It's, it's so alien because you know what's going to happen next, right? Out they go. Yeah. Yeah. At some point, the again. pod gets so big that the cell literally explodes. And these guys just whiz out. There's millions of them, billions of them. They whiz out into the bladder and start it all over again. What's going on then at a molecular level? Do you have any clues about about some of the, the genes and the proteins that are actually involved in this weirdly subversive process? Hardly anything, I'd say. There's been a few studies done suggesting that there's a protein called actin, which is inside all our cells. It makes a bit of a skeleton, and it keeps the cell a certain shape, and everybody's got actin. And there's a thought that maybe in these bladder cells, the actin is supposed to be keeping it in check and it gets somehow subverted. Um, but really, nothing's known. <laughs> Absolutely none. That's why I'm so excited about this project, because it's a completely wide-open field. So then tell me about how you and your lab are trying to approach this question. We've got two basic approaches in our lab. Uh, one approach deals with how we're going to treat these people. How can we design better therapies? Because the pods are inside the cells, the antibiotics that you take can't get in there. So antibiotics, many of them, cannot pass through the cell membrane. So we need to find better ways to get antibiotics inside the cells. And the other thing is just basic cell biology. What happens when the bacteria get inside? What does the cell do? What genes are required to allow these bacteria to, to escape from these cages? Um, there must be something going on. So we'll be using a genetic approach whereby we knock out genes that we think might be involved and see whether that uh, stops the bacteria from getting out. So it's the sort of basic approach where 
You know, if you wanted to know how a car worked, you could systematically break each part of a car and see what happened. It's the same sort of thing. We're going to systematically interfere with genes that we think might be involved and then see whether that affects the infection process. So how many genes are you going to start looking at? (laughs) Well, there's about 20,000 genes. Um, We've got a collection now of maybe 50 genes that I think might be implicated. They're genes that are expressing proteins that are near the surface of the cell, genes that express proteins that tend to be involved in trafficking of particles to and from the surface. So they're sort of things that are around there anyway, things that will probably be hanging out when these bacteria dive into the cells. And there's, there's a number of leads we have, and, and I think that we should be able to find something. I also want to do some really interesting sort of live imaging where we can make green bacteria and we can infect cells and see if we can actually see the bacteria going in and what they're doing. And then presumably watch them exploding back yeah. out. Yeah, there are. I've seen some amazing movies. I think that this is possible. This technology makes it possible, and I think it would be quite fun just to watch. But ultimately, with cell biology, you can't learn everything just by looking Things are so microscopic and complicated that you have to start doing sort of genetic interference to see things. What could be the benefit if we could make significant improvements to understanding and treating these UTIs? I think that if we understand how the bacteria get in, how they persist, and we should be able to prevent that from happening in the first place. I mean, we'll never be able to prevent cystitis. You know, women will always get urinary tract infections. But what we will be able to prevent if we know how it works, we can prevent the, the sort of invasion and the long-term colonization and the sort of alien pod-like thing. If we can prevent that from happening by targeting it with a drug, that would be brilliant. We see 150 patients a week in the clinic here, and these people are really, really miserable. And I think that if we can make a difference by studying this bacteria and improving their therapy, um, it will make a huge difference to their lives. That was Dr Jenny Roan from UCL. Coming up later, we'll be finding out how researchers use genetics to track infectious outbreaks. But first, it's time to take a look at the genetic stories in the news this month with Nell Barry. So, what's the first story you've got for us this month, Nell? The first story we're looking at is looking at the placebo effect, which is this idea that patients can get a benefit even when they're not actually being treated with anything. And they're looking at the genes that could possibly contribute to this. So this is published in PLOS1. And the researchers have looked at a particular gene that has a role in regulating the dopamine levels in the brain. So this is something, this is to do with our kind of reward and pleasure responses to things. It's like the happy, the happy chemical, isn't it? It makes you feel good, all that kind of stuff. Exactly. And the idea, their sort of hypothesis at the beginning was that perhaps people who can produce more dopamine in their brain so they can have more of this sort of pleasure response to specific things, maybe they could be more susceptible to the placebo effects and they wanted to test this. So they did that by getting some patients who have IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, and looking at different types of treatment. So that ranged from them being on a waiting list and getting no treatment at all, um, either or they could have placebo acupuncture, which is an interesting concept. I wonder how that works. Well, they just stick them or something. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a sham acupuncture device, so probably... You can feel it, but they're not actually going through the acupuncture procedures. Or they got the acupuncture placebo treatment, so fake acupuncture, plus getting to talk to a really nice, friendly, supportive doctor who listened to their concerns. And they compared all those different things and found that people with this genetic change that meant they could produce more dopamine responded a lot better 
to the supportive doctor and the placebo acupuncture. So that's quite interesting. I think this is fascinating because it's it's interesting that they chose IBS, which is a condition that it's quite chronic. It's difficult to know what causes it. It's difficult to know how you treat it. And it's seems to me that many of the conditions that that respond to alternative treatments, complementary treatments that are considered by many to be placebos, are these kind of very chronic chronic diseases. And I wonder if it would work for, for other things, just people would be more susceptible to having a nice hot bath or going shopping. It is really interesting because, you know, the placebo effect is really powerful and it really can help make people feel a lot better, even when we're looking at really serious diseases. So if we can find a way to sort of harness that and figure out who could benefit most, how can we you know, use the placebo effect to our own ends, that would be really exciting. And it's a small study, but it's it's a sort of pointing us in a direction of, you know, what's happening in the brain, how could this affect how you respond to the placebo effect. Now, I saw a paper this month in Nature, which is from a team in Denmark and the US, and this is electric bacteria. I absolutely love this. It turns out that there's uh, little bacteria, tiny, tiny bacteria, which you think are solitary beings, and they gang up together and make tiny electrical wires why are they doing this so these are bacteria that are living in that really kind of stinky horrible mud you get if you ever go yeah. sort of walking by the seaside and you're in your wellies and you stomp into the mud and it smells like farts and it's just utterly utterly gross but the bacteria are living in there and part of the reason why the mud smells so foul is because there's no oxygen in there to help break down all the kind of gunk and stuff and the bacteria have a problem with this too if they're living really deep down in the mud they can't get at the oxygen which is up at the surface so they are teaming up. They're forming these little filaments right through the mud so that the bacteria at the top can put electrons essentially onto oxygen and the bacteria at the bottom are taking electrons off sulphides in the mud. So it's, it's like a kind of a team effort to sort of breathe and eat at the same time doing it all together. It's really fascinating that you think of bacteria just as being, you know, solitary things. But actually, there's there's quite a lot of single-celled organisms that gang up together and, and do things like this. And this is a really interesting example. I wonder if we could make living microchips or living electrical devices with these bacteria. There's always been this idea that, you know, multicellular organisms might have evolved in this way, perhaps. So you, you start off with your one bacteria. They start teaming up together. And when it gets to the point that they can't work without each other anymore, essentially you've got a whole new organism. So it's quite interesting to see something that's sort of in between the two extremes, if you like. And speaking of things evolving, there's some worrying news about koalas. I saw this month. Um, this is very sad news. What's going on here? So this is one, something we hear hearing more and more about, which is a bit of a shame. So koalas obviously not doing particularly well in the wild because of various things. They've been hunted. They've had problems with disease. And this was some researchers going back to see whether old koala bones, um, examples that we have in museums, for example, whether they had more genetic diversity than koalas today. And their idea was that back when there were many more koalas around, there'd be a lot more diversity in the genes that all the animals had. And what they found was that actually koalas have had quite low genetic diversity for over a century, over 120 years. And it is a real shame because it is meaning that it's getting harder and harder for them to cope with what the environment's throwing at them. Things like chlamydia, for example. And it's, it sounds really weird, but koalas are actually really badly affected by chlamydia. Really? Oh, that sounds so sad. I found out about this when I was in Australia, because I just went to, you know, look at all the cool animals. And we went to a place called Kangaroo Island, which is a big island right at the bottom of Australia, where they've got a sort of great wildlife sanctuary set up, essentially. And it was, it was really nice to be there, but we were looking at a koala, 
And this guide was saying, oh, it's really great because, you know, the koalas here don't have chlamydia. And I was just standing there going, what? Ew. <laughs> koalas with sexually transmitted diseases is completely bizarre. But actually, loads of koalas on the mainland have chlamydia and it kills them. And we think that perhaps the fact that they've got this low genetic diversity means that there's not much resistance in the population and they're not they're not doing very well at sort of evolving to cope with this, essentially. It's sad that you think that populations, when they get so small, there really isn't a lot of hope for them. I hope there is hope for koalas. Yeah, exactly, because, I mean, I guess the question would be where, where do you get extra genetic diversity from? Once it's gone, it's gone, which is a real shame. So, I mean, hopefully we can find ways to kind of cope with this. And I guess, I guess the main thing for researchers would be this is a lesson for how you deal with animals that could get to that point and we have to stop that from happening. Well, let's keep our fingers crossed for the koala bears. Thanks very much, Nell. And now here's a roundup of the rest of this month's genetics news. Scientists in the US have made medical history by creating human embryos with three parents. This is a step towards using IVF techniques to solve so-called mitochondrial diseases caused by faulty power stations or mitochondria in a mother's egg cells. Because an embryo's mitochondria are only provided by the egg cell, researchers think that transferring the nucleus from an egg with faulty mitochondria into a donor egg with functional ones could sidestep the disease and create healthy babies. Writing in the journal Nature, Dr Shukrat Metalipov and his colleagues took the nucleus, containing DNA, out of human egg cells and transferred them into egg cells that had had their nucleus removed. These composite eggs were then fertilised by human sperm and allowed to start developing. The technique's already been successfully used in monkeys, leading to the birth of healthy monkey babies, and these new results show that it's potentially feasible in humans, although the embryos were destroyed after only a few days, when they were just a small cluster of cells. The UK recently launched a consultation on whether to consider the technique for treating patients with mitochondrial diseases, and this new study answers some questions about whether the technique could actually work in humans. Researchers at the University of South Florida have tracked down a genetic change linked to old-age hearing loss, something that affects millions of people around the world every year, publishing their findings in the journal Hearing Research. Thanks to a nine-year-long study of nearly 700 people, the scientists discovered that certain variations in a gene called GRM7, short for glutamate receptor metabotropic 7, were linked to a higher risk of hearing loss later in life the first time that a gene's been linked to old-age hearing loss. GRM7 helps to convert the sounds we hear into nerve signals that go into the brain, where they're decoded and interpreted. The researchers think it might be possible one day to test people for the presence of the risky gene variations, so they could choose to take extra precautions to protect their hearing if they wished. It sounds like the stuff of science fiction, but Omar Saleh and Deborah Feigenson at the University of California, Santa Barbara, have developed a DNA-based smart gel that can contract and move in response to stimuli in a similar way to living cells. Writing in the journal PNAS, the scientists created a cell-sized blob of goo made of a mixture of short and long DNA strands, together with special proteins known as motor proteins, which can reel in or spool out these strands. By feeding the motor proteins ATP molecules, which act as an energy source, they move the DNA strands around, changing the shape and stiffness of the gel. Because DNA molecules can be engineered to have different properties by changing the sequence of letters in them, and because there's a huge range of motor proteins that could be used, this discovery potentially opens the door to bioengineered smart materials that could be used to make artificial muscles or other useful things. 
the researchers are now refining their blob to try and create something that can move in specific ways, such as twisting or crawling, which would bring more control. And if you want to find out more about any of these stories, the references are all on our website. That's nakedscientist.com slash genetics. You're listening to the Naked Genetics podcast with me, Dr. Kat Arney. Still to come, we'll be finding out why we have 23 pairs of chromosomes, but other organisms don't. But now it's time to take a closer look at bacterial genes. I spoke to Dr. Matt Holden at the Sanger Institute in Cambridge to find out how advances in genome sequencing are helping researchers and doctors to understand more about bad bacteria and even to track infections as they happen. Well, genome sequencing over the last, uh, say, 15 years of, of say, bacterial uh, sequencing um, has been very informative about telling us uh, about the contents of, of genomes and, it, and it's really propelled research forward. It allowed biologists and geneticists to, to have a, a glimpse of what uh, the genetic blueprint of, of many important pathogens are and so from that try and dissect what are the important genes, what are the genes that allow it to survive in certain niches, what are the genes that maybe cause the damage when they, uh, they're um, causing disease. Um, in this in this case, we're, we're now moving to a situation with sequencing where the technological advances of sequencing have mean that rather than being a fundamental sort of research tool, uh, which is sort of based in institutions like uh, the Sanger Institute where I work and, and university labs, it's now been uh, sort of transited to a, a sort of setting of a diagnostic labs because of the reduction in costs and, and increase in throughput. So we're now looking at genome sequencing as a, as a diagnostic tool. So when you are identifying bacteria, you won't just identify them by maybe culturing them on, on a selective media. You'll actually sequence the genome. So for a, for a pathogen that comes into and, in, say, has been isolated from a disease situation, you can identify or sort of reconstruct the, the genome and identify what genes it's carrying, which can be very important when you're trying to uh, uh, provide information about what antibiotics to use because from the genome you, you can predict what antibiotics the, the pathogen may be sensitive for. And the, the key to this is it can be done very cheaply or it's becoming certainly becoming cheaper and also it can be done rapidly, which means it's, it can certainly uh, um, provide clinicians uh, and those involved in the management of disease uh, important information uh, within a in a within a very short space of time. One of the things that you did recently was to actually track an infection, an MRSA infection. How did you go about doing that, and what did you find? What we wanted to do was to use genome sequencing to look at the isolates that were uh, identified in this uh, outbreak that occurred on a, a neonatal intensive care ward and to see what information. Uh, genome sequencing would provide that um, would help uh, and combat this sort of uh, transmissions in in future. So uh, we're also interested to to discover w what it told us about the the, the outbreak itself. That perhaps um, standard clinical uh, uh, diagnostics and infection control didn't. So we we sequenced the the, the genomes of uh, fourteen isolates that were identified in this outbreak and also additional uh, isolates of MRSA that were um, uh, identified in the hospital at the same time and showed through genome sequencing we were able to effectively reconstruct a family tree for these bacteria. So 
what we were able to do was identify very clearly which bacteria are involved in the outbreak and show that these were very distinct from the other bacteria that were floating around in the hospital at the, the time. But we also were able to, to go into the genomes and predict what antibiotics the microorganisms were, were sensitive to, so providing information that clinicians could potentially use very quickly to, to, to treat uh, patients who become infected, and also predict which uh, toxins they were carrying, which, again, can be important when uh, to inform uh, clinicians as to uh, how to manage disease and, and uh, uh, um, when it occurs in, in, a, in a clinical setting where you have potentially pathogenic bacteria that have got uh, important toxins involved that can cause particular types of disease. How do you think being able to track the genetics of bacteria in this way will be useful to, to doctors and beneficial to patients in the future? Well, obviously, the, the study that we've done uh, recently is very much a, a sort of it represents a proof of principle. And so... Um, it's a, a, a case where we're, we're seeing what the potential of it is. Obviously, with technology changes uh, or te- technology progress, the cost of sequencing will go down and also the rapidity with which you can sequence a genome is going to go up. So the immediate benefit will be hopefully that you will be able to uh, identify what bacteria is associated with infection and, and whether or not it's related to other bacteria that are part of an outbreak very rapidly, hopefully quicker and uh, than standard techniques. But also with a decrease in cost, we can, you can do it uh, for uh, more cheaply. The other benefit is that it gives you... Uh, um, the com- you have the entire genome sequence there, so you can actually look at, at the contents and provide all this additional information that we currently don't have. We, we get this extra resolution been able to distinguish related bacteria, but we also get all the genetic information in there that gives us a, a new insight into to what the, the bacteria are, are carrying. That was Dr Matt Holden from the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute. And now it's time to look at your burning genetics questions with the help of naked scientist Louise Anthony. Hello, and with me this month is Dr John Welsh from the Department of Genetics at the University of Cambridge. Jeff in Virginia has emailed us to ask, how did different organisms get their chromosome count? We have 23 and ferns have over 100, so it doesn't seem to be linked to complexity. How does chromosome number change over time? Dr Welsh. Well, there are two quite different uh, but but perhaps equally important ways in which chromosome number can change. The first, sometimes there's a problem when the cell makes copies of itself and that ends in the complete genome doubling. We end up with two complete copies of the genome. This does seem to be an important process in evolution and has contributed to change in in animals, in fungi, in single-celled protozoa, but is hugely important in, in the evolution of plants. The second way, which um, the second important way in which chromosome number can change, is by two chromosomes fusing into one, or one chromosome splitting apart into two. Um, this is something that's happened in our own lineage. For example, our own chromosome two seems to be the result of the fusion between two chromosomes, which were present in our most recent common ancestor with chimps and bonobos. The important thing about this type of change in chromosome number is on the whole the genetic information that's present in the cell doesn't change very much. And this means that in this case, for the person with the unusual number of chromosomes or the organism with an unusual number of chromosomes, there doesn't seem to be many consequences at all of changing the way that that information is distributed amongst chromosomes. 
However, there can be problems for the fertility of that individual when they go on to try and make sperm or eggs. However, what's becoming increasingly clear from experiments is that the, the reduction in fertility, the partial sterility, seems to be much less than we might predict. It seems to be only a small uh, 4 or 5%, for example, reduction in fertility in individuals with a small number of chromosomes. This means that while... Um, while the change in chromosome number might be subject, um, might be selected against, natural selection might act to slightly reduce the number of odd-numbered chromosomes in the population. This effect can be rather weak, and so just random sampling effects taking place over the generations can mean that the abnormal number of chromosomes reaches a high frequency in the population without weak natural selection being able to counteract this effect. And that's probably an important mechanism by which chromosome number changes in practice. And finally, our gene of the month is mind bomb. First described in zebrafish... Fish with faults in the mind-bomb gene have big problems developing a nervous system or muscles. And in their ears, and yes, fish do have them, they have ten times as many sensory hair cells as would be expected. These are the cells responsible for picking up vibrations around them. They also have twice as many nerve cells in their ears as normal fish. In 1998, Dr Julian Lewis and his team at the London Research Institute figured out that MindBomb must be playing an important role in the notch signalling pathway, which tells cells what fate to adopt or what job to do. As you might expect, there are versions of MindBomb in a host of other organisms, including mammals, where it's involved in making sure the brain and nervous system develop properly. Earlier this year, scientists also showed that MindBomb plays a role in the adult mouse brain and it's essential for helping to create long-term memories. MindBomb is also the name of a pretty lethal cocktail made with pure alcohol, of the kind that you'd find in a molecular biology lab, so don't try this one at home. That's all for now. I'll be back again next month finding out about the genetics of a complex group of diseases that aren't caused by bacteria but start from the cells within us. We'll be taking a look at cancer. If you've got any questions or feedback, just email me, genetics at thenakedscientist.com. You can get in touch through the main Naked Scientist Facebook page, that's nakedscientist.com slash Facebook, or tweet me, at Naked Genetics. Don't forget that every episode of the Naked Genetics podcast is available on iTunes or online at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. The Naked Genetics podcast has been brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I'll see you next month for another peek inside your genes.